The Sydney Festival podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and those who are yet to emerge, and thank them for their wisdom. For 45 years, Sydney Festival has brought you bold performance, cultural celebrations, art, and big ideas to our sticky Sydney summers. I'm Wesley Enoch, the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival 2021. Our program this year is called Australian Made, and it's mostly about recovering after the year we've had. But it's also about connecting with our community, about reinvigorating our incredible local art scene, and to remind us of how resilient we really are. So let's get started. I'm talking to Michael Cantor, who's the creator and director of Rapture, uh, a new work featuring Iota and Paul Capsis that'll be playing at Sydney Festival in 2021. Michael, hello. Hello, Wesley. Good to see you. It's so great to see you. <laughs> We're in this kind of topsy-turvy world at the moment, aren't we, where things are kind of rolling in and out. Uh, you were in lockdown in Melbourne for a little while. Uh, well, not for a little while, a very long while. Um, we're all, you know, putting our um, thoughts with you guys in Sydney and making making great vibes run up the Hume Highway so that you don't have to go through the same thing. And I'm sure you won't. I'm sure by the time people are listening to this, it's a very sunny, lovely new year. Well, let's just talk about that idea of trauma. Let's talk about this idea of what this period of time is. In many ways, we've been going through hell in in a way. And this uh, song cycle, Rapture, talk to us a little bit about it, what what it means, where it comes from. It's got a very long history, Wesley. It's something that I have been working on with Paul Capsis and the rather remarkable uh, musical director and composer Jethro Woodward for five years I've been talking about this project. But I used to call it Go to Hell. But then we went to hell. So it's not the right title for the current climate. We came up with something a little bit more ambiguously joyous in the form of rapture. But it has this history of an exploration with Paul, his unique voice, his unique stage craft and stage persona uh, of being able to kind of travel with his voice from the highest, sweetest sounds to the really the depths of hell. He's one of those people that journeys for us into strange places and frightening places at times and traumatic places. 18 months ago, we realised this is actually a two-hander and it was clear to me that the missing ingredient was Iota and his mm. ability as well to, to kind of channel for us um, strange creations, figures from the imagination, but are always very, very human, even when he's wearing a rabbit suit. Those performers both, uh, I see them as shapeshifters too. They morph their personalities, their personas to create an incredible set of characters and and performance styles. I mean, I I imagine that's what you're taking us on too with Rapture. Absolutely. It's wonderful to be able to just launch into a song and know that either Paul or Iota will transform in front of us. They're like shamans. They don't physically change. They don't, it's not that their face contorts or they put on wigs, but they channel. And through their channelings, strange, somewhat made up, but also based on figures and figures from history and figures from now seem to transmorph in front of us and, and become really wonderful creatures for us. But through them, they're always very human. It never gets to the point where you just think, oh, this is this, you know, wacky, weird and not interesting. This is always <laughs> interesting because there's always a humanity in both of them. Um, what we've constructed with with Rapture, it's really a song cycle that exists without narrative, 
but there's a bit of a narrative. Uh, rather, it's really a, a sequences of uh, a sequence of songs that are mask themselves as being joyous and fun, but have within them um, a darkness or a trauma or a sadness or a melancholy or a yearning for something else or a warning. Well, tell us a little bit about the songs then. So I know that there's some original songs and some songs that from from the, the canon, if you like. Yeah, so we've been working with a really amazing group of Australian songwriters, principally in that mix, uh, Megan Washington, who's written uh, four songs for us. She actually wrote ten songs. She's the most prolific thing in the world. Uh, Deb Conway and her partner, Willie Zeger, who are you know, Melbourne icons and have written to very striking biblically-themed anthems. Um, and Pete Farnan, who's a very well-known Melbourne composer and, and you know, goes right back to Serious Young Insects, if you can remember that far back. Uh, and so we've married now, there's seven or eight songs from that bunch with some really well-known songs. Of course, there's Blondie's Rapture, uh, yes. which is uh, her, it played in a way you've never heard it before. There's a, a kink song, there's a song from, um, of all people, uh, Leo Sayer. They, they are knitted together, though, by an exploration of what happens when you fall in love with the wrong person. Within that, there's a, there's a story of uh, temptation and a story of um, desire and a story of uh, murder and mayhem. Rapture makes me think it's also about redemption and about, like, rap, good Christian boy that I am, rapture is a kind of a, a lifting up and a, a redemption of some sort. Throughout there is an offer of redemption and an offer of rapture, and in the end there is a very direct relationship to the book of Revelations and the, and the, the calling up. It's, it's Christian but it's broader. It really is just... You know, at the end of times, will we all be absolved? Will we all actually be allowed to journey uh, to the chosen land? Well, the thing about the chosen land is it's for the chosen. What is it about music that you think can give you a, a, a big emotional range? By being symbolic in nature, it, it just wonderfully avoids any, anything natural. It's not naturalistic. It is transportative in its essence. It's wonderfully not real. And therefore, it goes straight to the heart. I don't, I don't think of music that doesn't somehow affect your heart. It can affect your heart by just making one jump up and down and dance. Like, that's a beautiful, joyous reaction to music. But it can also take you very quickly to places. Why is it that you can put a piece of music on, you're feeling fine. 20 seconds later, you can be crying. It's, it's like yeah. magic. It is alchemical music, I think. And, and listening to voices can give you that kind of sense when you're talking about Paul Capsis. Uh, you've worked with Paul over, oh, I'm going to say decades now, three decades easily. We first worked together in Sydney, actually, uh, doing the Caucasian Chalk Circle at Belvoir Street in 1998. People have very, very long memories. They might remember that. Whenever I've been able to, I would, I would love to have Paul in the rehearsal room and on the stage because he is a really special human you know as you know Wesley just to be with Paul is a special thing this idea that Paul Capsis as you said is almost well shamanistic in the way he he can shift and change and move and has incredible skill as as a singer and performer why do you invite him into a rehearsal room into a process with you what drives that connection for you many things but principally that Paul um, is so open to changing his mind Paul is just as prepared to say, oh, no, maybe, actually, let's not do that. Yeah, Michael, you, you think this way about the song, let's try that. Let's go into those directions. He's very open in that way. He's also 
willing to express that kind of um, difficult area between sexes and between genders and between ethnicities. He sits beautifully, liminally across many spaces and he's aware of all of that. He's not uh, obsessed about making you know, grand political points through it. He just imbues that wonderful sense of transformation constantly. He's never one thing. He's always one foot the other way. And I love that. I love the, the nuance that comes from it and the complexity and for an audience, the sense of um, expectation or, or unease sometimes. I, what I've loved about watching Paul over the years as a performer is also his ability to bring you on this journey. Like, like he's, he's not just this godlike figure on the stage. He's such a human being. He's such a kind of opens up a humanity, as you say. And Iota does that similar thing, watching Iota kind of shift and change and move in front of you with an incredible voice. Have you worked with Iota uh, before? Two years ago, I was very lucky to be able to direct the uh, Australian premiere of Lazarus, which was the David Bowie musical, mm. the very last thing that Bowie did for the stage. Um, and uh, Iota came down to Melbourne and we had a great time working and he played a kind of um, angel of death. You know, he just imbued an element or many elements of David Bowie like that for us, um, but brought totally his own specific um, humanity and charm to it. And we're quite hopeful that we'll get to take this elsewhere in the future. It was the last show the production company, a Melbourne-based company devoted to musical theatre, did the second last show, uh, and so I hope it wasn't the show that forced it to close. <laughs> but, yeah, that company no longer exists, which is a, which is a real shame for Melbourne. Music theatre is often seen as this um, high-end, big commercial entity, and I thought production company and a lot of work you've been doing too is shining a light on music theatre that could be, you know, different as well. I mean, if you were to give some advice to music theatre audiences and makers, what, what would you be saying that we need to do more in Australia? Well, two things distinctly. More new work. And new work is hard. We all know how hard, um, you know, a play is. Where's the, uh, imagine a play plus music and then plus all of the um, difficulties of the commercial frame put over that. It's hard. We need to be um, generating or allowing for the generation of so many more musicals. The way to do that is to don't dream up huge cast musicals. Let's work towards, you know, seven-handers, eight-handers. It's a beautiful thing that's come up in Sydney recently, Fangirls, of, a, you know, a simple little musical that's, you know, very charming okay. uh, and obviously finding an audience. That, that I think, is really important, new work. And secondly, we not, need to start treating the canon of musicals as the way we, we, we treat the canon of of plays, that they're there for reinterpretation. They're there to be made relevant for us now. And that can mean rather dramatic intervention into um, how they're staged. A lot of musicals, uh, they weren't written and set in stone. They've become set in stone. Like Cole Porter's musicals are actually just a bunch of Cole Porter's songs. You could put them in different order. You could look for new meaning and new significance. Mm -hmm. and, and it's what's starting to happen a lot in America, like there's amazing production I saw recently, and many people probably have seen it, of Oklahoma that totally <laughs> transformed Oklahoma into something that was powerfully about Trump's America and mm. about depression and about um, the scourge of, of drug addiction across this, you know, uh, literally Oklahoma. It was so powerful. And you can use mm. these big, epic old uh, pieces to really find a nuance and context 
very specific to this moment. So I think that's what we should be focusing on. Well, I think when you, when you say new work as well, I mean, Hamilton's about to, well, Touchwood about to open in, in Sydney in a, uh, just after the Sydney Festival. And the sense of saying, here's a new work, but it's not new. It's taken a long time for um, the, the, the creative team to mature. But in Australia, we don't often invest in the maturing of a creative team. That, that comes out of a group of people that worked, yeah, two or three mu- music theatre works before this. Also, oh. it in itself was four years in workshops and coming in and out and new songs and there's, you know, famously um, Lin-Manuel singing one of the songs to Barack Obama in 2010. Like, it's been around, it took a long time. Um, and we tend to say, get it on. Is it any good? Oh, oh, there's a problem in the third act and it kind of goes a bit flat, gone. You know, we don't even allow a work to fail a bit. Most works need to fail a bit. Very few music theatre works or any work um, arrives and the first rendering of it is perfect. I can't think of a thing. Um, And we just need to have more patience. We need to be more open as audiences to seeing the good in something, being willing to criticise, but not destroying things. You know, let, let things... Um, offer their goodness and not be, yeah, pulled down only for their, you know, sometimes quite minor weaknesses. Well, I, I mean, we need, need good critical debate and, and good critics, good reviewers. I mean, I, I, I see too that in social media, um, you know, that's taking over a lot more. We don't expect that the newspapers or, or websites will actually give us good reviews or uh, when I say good reviews, reviews that are useful to us to help grow and to help grow a work. I mean, what do you think we need to do in this country to to help shift that debate so that audiences and investors, be they the public investor or the, um, or the companies, what do they need to do to help? I think the simple answer is more, more work. More work in the the local municipal hall. More work that might just borrow the um, you know the back room at the church and put on something. More work that is um, staged in your local supermarket. We need to, as artists, get out to audiences. Um, mm. It's not really audiences' fault that they don't really care too much about us. <laughs> you know that we have to get to them, and and it's hard, you know, because we're we're expensive. We're very expensive um, as, you know, the performing arts in Australia really is not affordable for most people. So we need to work out how we can actually either get cheaper or get out to where you are. And so it's not so odd and foreign. It still feels, I think, a lot of performing arts feels like not not for me. You know, for many, many people, they say, well, that's just not for me. That's for someone else. Well, it's actually for everyone. So... And during this whole pandemic, all the lockdowns, I don't know about you, but the people who now are saying, I'm reading more books, I'm listening to more music, I'm watching, you know, more stuff on, on Netflix or Stan or wherever, people are engaging in the arts all the time, but somehow there's still this divide. They say, oh, but I don't really know the arts. You go, no, you're, you're swimming in it every day. You might have a different opinion, Wesley, but I, I feel like there is an inherent problem in that nearly all of the arts still exists as a, an import in people's minds. And until we actually place, firstly, Indigenous performance at the heart and we grow out of that, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to end up doing Tennessee Williams, but, you know, it's placing what's at the middle of everything. What's the heartland from which art and artistic practice finds place and meaning here? 
And I think with, you know, like many parts of Australia, that's been wrong for, for 200, 220 years or something. And until we kind of reroute that, we're up against it in some ways. Um, what you've been doing at the festival for the last four years is really important and, and has had significance. Wesley, down here, we look up there and we go, now that's an inherently different way of approaching what a festival is, what performance and performance making can be and should be. Not that every piece is indigenous. This doesn't have to be that at all. It's actually just where's the heart onto which everything is built. Now, that's, that's a big cultural amnesia that needs to be repaired. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Michael. Thank you for that. Well, let's, let's just go back to Rapture to, to, to wrap up on Rapture. Um, what is the audience going to see on stage? We've, we've got two amazing performers. What else? You know, Wesley, if you're going to give me a 35-metre-wide stage and huge screens <laughs> and an audience of, you know, 1,500 people hopefully jumping up and down and having a great time, uh, they're going to see a show. So there's a big involved, there's lots of costume changes, there's um, a whole um, series of really wild music videos that are, have been constructed to play simultaneous with the music, and you'll see some very big, wild performance from those two. <laughs> we love that. We love that. And we're looking forward to, I think, the idea of, as you say, this, this, this redemptive narrative almost going through the hell and bringing us back to something to look forward to, looking up to, to heaven, if, that's, if, if heaven really exists. There's certainly a projected heaven, but heaven's beyond Christian. You know, heaven's for everyone to be able to dream of. And if you need to use the world or earth or nature to be your heaven, that's that's where I do it, but, you know, all sorts of heaven. It's not a, it's not a overtly religious show, but it does um, touch on religious themes, definitely. Well, I think that uh, with those two performers and with Jethro kind of bringing it all together, you imagine there's going to be such a kind of spiritual experience, if nothing else. And we also have a, a wild string quartet on stage. So, yeah, we're certainly um, going to be calling out to the heavens. I'm talking to Michael Cantor, who's the director and creator of Rapture, which is performing at the Headland at Barangaroo Reserve during Sydney Festival in 2021. Thanks so much, Wesley. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sydney Festival, head to sydneyfestival.org.au and be sure to subscribe to the Sydney Festival channel wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.